For those of you who don't really know how voting works in this country, it's a very disaggregated, decentralized process. And in theory, that's a, that's a strength of the system is that because it's so decentralized and disaggregated at the really the local county level, that's where voting, individual voting happens for all of you who vote. There's no one key central vulnerability, at least from a either a physical side or even a cyber side. Well, if you just disrupt this voting database, um, either in a county or perhaps even at a state level, you'll disrupt the entirety of the, the national election. It'll certainly have an impact on it, but it won't lead to strategic collapse. Welcome to the Burnbag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. I'm Andre Gonoella. And today we're thrilled to have Javed Ali on the podcast. Now, some of you may know Javed from his intros on our earlier episodes, but for those who don't know Javed, uh, I'll just give a quick background. So Javed spent over 20 years in and out of the U.S. government, serving at the Defense Intelligence Agency, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, and most recently at the National Security Council, where he was Senior Director for Counterterrorism. Now, Javed, I probably missed a couple of your other positions, um, but today you are actually serving at the University of Michigan, where you are Towsley Policymaker in Residence at the Ford School of Public Policy. You're also Non-Resident Fellow at New America. And of course, executive producer of this very podcast. Uh, so Javed, Andre and I are very excited to talk with you about a wide variety of issues. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Ryan, Andre, um, thanks so much for actually having me as a guest. It feels a little strange to be sitting on, or at least virtually sitting on this side of the fence, having sat with you on the other side, uh, trying to help bring this podcast to life and then uh, manage some of the shows. You guys have done an amazing job sort of giving this um, life and seeing what we've been able to accomplish already. So I'm just honored that you actually have me on as a guest right now. Definitely. And I think we really want to use this episode to sort of frame the entire national security field and really talk about all the priorities and the concerns that our country is facing uh, overall. And I think our first question should really just dive into COVID-19. So, uh, Javed, could you outline some of the key national security risks associated with COVID-19? I think certainly in the past, especially in December 2019, many of us have often thought of a pandemic or a potential pandemic as a, quote, public health issue rather than a security issue. However, the effects of this pandemic have been multifaceted, and I think that's certainly an understatement. Uh, could you cover some of these security risks? Sure. Um, and really interesting and, and complex question to start with. Um, so let me take a, a stab at it. Um, so when the, the disease happened and, and the outbreak uh, you know, tragically started to unfold, I, one of the things I've tried to do since I've been out of government and now into academia is write short opinion pieces based on my career in national security, looking at current issues and trying to see you know, what are the potential national security um, considerations that perhaps people are either already thinking about in government or, or may not. So um, going back to the spring, I wrote a short piece in the Hill that looked at then, at that current time frame, um, potential national security um, issues uh, that COVID was surfacing and identified three um, and interestingly, two of those three have come to fruition in terms of actual sort of threats or risks. The, the third perhaps is not, at least right now. And then others have, have surfaced too. So I'm going to try and cover some of those. So at least in the, the piece um, 
earlier in the year, I talked about the potential opportunity it could uh, present to other adversaries uh, in terms of taking advantage of the U.S. response and everything that came with it and the attention that it was then consuming in Washington and elsewhere. Um, and how would that potentially make us vulnerable to physical threats from uh, either terrorist groups or nation state adversaries like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, all the ones that are captured in the uh, Trump administration's national security strategy and the 2017 national defense strategy. And interestingly enough, at least at that overt physical threat or kinetic attacks against U.S. interests overseas, that hasn't really happened yet. doesn't mean that it won't in the future, but at least right now, that hasn't happened. And maybe it's because these other countries themselves are, are struggling with um, their own um, response to COVID and also weighing the pros and cons of, of military action or kinetic action against the United States. And, and would they be able to, to withstand a U.S. response if they were to take offensive action? So that was one, one of those. The, other, the second was potential increase in domestic terrorism. Um, and oddly enough, uh, that threat has, has certainly played out uh, in, in multiple spaces, but most prominently in the what I would consider the far right end of the terrorist spectrum. And that's not a monolithic uh, aspect of, of domestic terrorism. There's, there's multiple actors and movements and even um, groups, smaller groups in that far right domestic terrorism space. But that certainly seemed to have happened. And there are, I think there are a lot of drivers for that. Maybe we'll get into it later. Um, in the conversation. And then there was the risk of cyber operations and cyber threats. And that likewise has played out not as much on the physical side. And that was something I thought potentially might happen with elements of the US um, medical infrastructure and public health infrastructure and law enforcement uh, invested in, in managing different aspects of the country's response to, to COVID-19. Would, would any of that be affected physically by cyber uh, disruptive operations. Um, and outside of some website defacement and other things, we don't, I don't, at least the public record has showed that there hasn't really been much of that. But the cyber threat, I think, is manifested in the disinformation space. Um, and that seems to be something, and this is this is an issue that the US intelligence community has has talked about and, and, and media reports have talked about how um, that those foreign adversaries that I discussed earlier that have not launched these physical attacks against our interests overseas um, have, have used cyber operations or cyber tools to foment um, disinformation campaigns, to accelerate these social divisions that are already occurring in the United States because of um, COVID. So that, though, two of those three things, three things have happened. And then a Perhaps another category that I didn't necessarily put in to that piece, but I wrote about a couple months later, were on the intelligence um, community front, and that's Ryan, as you mentioned, that's the world I came in um, from from government. Um, there certainly seems to have been an effect uh, on the intelligence community in terms of activity. The intelligence community was seeing before the outbreak became really significant, and there's been reporting on that about what the, the White House knew or didn't know about. Um, the COVID and late night COVID and late nineteen or early uh, this year, and then uh, and then what? How has the intelligence community changed or shifted in terms of resources, capabilities, personnel, money, all the things that you would measure 
how an organization or an enterprise adjusts to, to new realities or circumstances, and how much of that is going on within the intelligence community to, to confront this um, enormous threat that's presented by COVID. So I tried to address that in a follow-on piece later in the year. So really jumping off of that and this discussion on the intelligence community uh, during COVID-19, I think you actually did a piece recently on this topic I'm going to ask you about. So recently news broke that the sitting director of national intelligence, uh, John Ratcliffe, has basically stopped briefing Congress in person about security threats in the weeks preceding our 2020 elections. Uh, Moreover, some People have suggested that briefings to President Trump have also been diluted. Uh, I mean, just this past week, maybe yesterday, actually, stories emerged about uh, CIA director Gina Haspel suppressing intelligence on Russia in briefings to President Trump. Uh, Does this in some ways signify a politicization of the intelligence community, something that has generally been seen as apolitical and nonpartisan? And... Have these developments, in your view, been harmful to the protection of the homeland? Uh, another interesting and complex set of issues to, to walk through there. So thanks for that, Andre. Um, yeah, I did write a piece uh, in early September that was based on uh, news that had come out uh, just a, a few days prior to that, that um, the DNI had, I guess, ordered, for lack of a better word, or directed uh, his team to stop providing in-person, in-person briefings to congressional um, committees or members or staff about uh, election security threats. And the piece I wrote uh, was, in my opinion, again, uh, as a former intelligence community uh, practitioner and someone who had a significant amount of experience briefing Congress, that didn't seem to be a good idea uh, to me on whether it was election security threats or or any uh, vital national security uh, issue that members of Congress would want to hear about. Now, I think the slight adjustment on that is that Actually, I think it came out last week that the DNI, uh, DNI Ratcliffe reversed that earlier decision and apparently, at least on the, the reporting that I saw, uh, has agreed to resume those in-person um, briefings. So hopefully that, that continues going forward. Uh, on the part about um, how analysis might be uh, sort of being diluted or, or um, sort of uh, issues being downplayed when it comes to briefing the president. I would hope that's not happening. Again, I have no direct knowledge of any of that. Um, the role of the intelligence community and as someone who came from that world is supposed to, you're supposed to provide uh, the most unvarnished perspective that's apolitical uh, based on the information you have available to you, whether it's uh, classified intelligence uh, and or open source information or the combination of those two things to policymakers, warfighters, other customers who need those assessments and perspectives to make informed policy decisions. And at no time should should political prerogatives um, sort of come into play in sort of coloring how you how you do the work. So I guess my only insight into that, or not even insight, but my my observation is I hope that's not happening. And there there will be moments in any intelligence professional's career where you'll be uh, asked to, at least on the analytic side, to write an assessment that may not necessarily be in alignment with the political uh, prerogatives of whatever administration's in power, but that shouldn't hold you back from providing, again, that unvarnished perspective based on, on how, how you see things analytically. So we'll see how this plays out, but it, it certainly seems based on what's been reported over the last few years, 
that this you know, President Trump just does not seem to want to uh, sort of absorb the intelligence or the an intelligence analysis that's available to him as the President of the United States um, on Russia-specific threats. Why that is, um, I'm not really sure I have an insight into that, but that certainly seems to be something that's come out of, of, of media reporting on this stuff. So if we if we kind of stay in this vein of the politicization of you know government departments of the executive, um, in the IC in particular, uh, you of course worked at the Department of Homeland Security, and there's been a lot of controversy recently, similarly to what you and you and Andre were just talking about at CIA and ODNI, that being um, DHS and with the um, the current acting Secretary Chad Wolf, bring a lot of politicized work to the department, right? And so we've seen uh, in recent weeks and months, uh, DHS responding to protests and riots that have more or less turned violent um, with, with, with significant force, you know, sending federal agents. Uh, before we kind of dive into that aspect of it, uh, could you briefly outline what the mission of DHS is, kind of what it was founded for and intended to do, just so our our audience kind of has a general understanding of, of the mission of DHS. Sure. Um, so I was privileged enough to work for the Department of Homeland Security um, almost at the beginning of the department in the summer. When I got there in the summer of 2003, it, is, it was established as a department a few months earlier that year. Uh, and then I was there till 2007. So I had an interesting perspective on DHS as an organization and its mission as it was relatively new as, as this. Um, large government entity. So for those who don't know the history of the Department of Homeland Security, it was created in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on 9-11 by Al-Qaeda. Here, prior to that, there was no single U.S. government agency that had this wide-ranging set of responsibilities for protecting um, the United States in different aspects. There were different pieces of DHS that different departments and agencies had, but they weren't unified under one common departmental structure, if that makes sense. When I was a contractor, Ryan, you mentioned my career. So the first four years of uh, my national security career before I came into government in 2002, was working for a, a national security uh, company in, in the DC area. And that company was involved in what I would argue were a lot of uh, initial initiatives that were homeland security, focused before 9-11 and before the creation of the department. So it was an interesting perspective to have those previous four years from 1998 to 2002, and then um, being in uh, Homeland Security from 2003 to 2007, knowing sort of what that pre-DHS world looked like uh, for Homeland Security and then the actual being inside the, the department. Um, but then the, the department formally wasn't created until 2002 with the Homeland Security Act, and then took several months to actually figure out how to how to put the bureaucratic structures and all the different pieces of how you need to run a, a large government organization in place uh, until the spring of 2003. So the department actually didn't start till then. And again, I came in a couple of months later and its goal was very clear. It's a very clear mission, protect the United States from all different types of threats. Now in those early days after 9-11, and certainly when I was at the department for those three and a half years, it was almost exclusively a counterterrorism-specific focus. I can't say it was 100%, but because of the impact of 9-11 and all the different pieces of homeland security that had to be addressed and fixed and resolved in the aftermath of, of that horrific attack, DHS put so much effort then 
on the, the terrorist threat to the United States. And, and mostly it was an externally directed threat or the, the sense of a, an externally directed threat, um, what I would call sort of an outside-in threat from mostly Al-Qaeda, but perhaps other uh, internationally based foreign terrorist organizations. So that was kind of the orientation of the department from its beginning till the time when I left in the, in the mid to late 2000s. But I had the, by, by the position I had as sort of the senior analyst in the department, I had an insight into how Governor Ridge uh, saw his role as a secretary and then likewise Secretary Chertoff. So it was a really powerful moment in my own career just to see how something new um, like the Department of Homeland Security was coming into play and then how two different um, leaders tried to guide the organization to tackle mostly the, the foreign terrorist threat to the United States. Well, well, thank you for that context. I think it's very helpful and will kind of inform this next question. Um, so Javed, has the politicization of DHS harmed national security interests or infrastructures? And do you think that you know, the politicking within the DHS bureaucracy has impeded or will into the future impede the functionality and mission of uh, of the department? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's a lot there's a lot to discuss there. We could have an entire podcast, a series of podcasts on. And I think you're you're thinking of bringing other guests on to 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 dig deeper into the, the department and its mission. But um, suffice to say, again, from my perspective, what I saw were were the growing pains uh, of a of a new organization and and everything that comes with it. So it was by no means perfect in terms of you know, optimization of, of the department's mission back then, which was more counterterrorism specific. But I really didn't get a sense, and maybe I'm just looking at my own experience through a different set of glasses, but I didn't get a sense um, that things were being overtly politicized at DHS. Um, and I thought I had an insight into that, again, having served, being able to sort of serve at the to, to the highest levels of, of the department or seeing what people like Secretary Ridge and Secretary Chertoff were trying to do. Um, so, but certainly under this administration, it seems like there does, there, there has been a little bit more or perhaps even a lot more on the polit, you know, politicized front in terms of picking priorities. But I would also argue DHS's mission is more dynamic now than it was when I was there going back 17 years or when I started 17 years ago. So in addition to counterterrorism, the department also has put a lot of effort on um, cybersecurity, uh, critical infrastructure protection, which was tied to that original counterterrorism focus. Border security, clearly for this administration, is a major priority that's wrapped up under the the Homeland Security um, sort of uh, mantra. Um, Aviation security is another thing that's a, it's a, after outgrowth of 9-11, but that's still something that, that the department needs to, to spend a lot of attention on um, how the department is, is playing a role in COVID, uh, the response to COVID-19. That's something that the, the department, I think that's a emerging sort of mission set for it. So if you look at just the complexity and the, of the missions that DHS has to wrestle with versus now versus when I was there, it's just a very different dynamic. And if you make a political choice now on perhaps prioritizing one of those missions at the exclusion of something else that perhaps might be more important, well, then perhaps we might be seeing the results of, of what you described earlier with you know, the deployment of, of 
ICE and other um, DHS law enforcement resources to Portland to quell civil unrest. So that, that just seems to be something very different going on within the department now versus when I was there. And jumping off of what you just mentioned about the sending of DHS agents to Portland, I mean, the Trump administration has really cited this action as, quote, necessary to restore order to the city uh, amidst this wave of riots and protests that have sometimes turned violent. Uh, Are local and state law enforcement agencies truly capable of handling these issues, though? Like, in your view, was there any validity whatsoever to uh, this action of sending DHS agents to basically imp- implement, quote unquote, law and order? Yeah, it's another tough question. And again, I had a, a really interesting perspective on how state and local law enforcement works with the federal government in my pre-government years working for this private company before 9-11, because a lot of the work was directed um, at, at that at that level. And um, what I saw in those in those years in the late 90s into the you know, the run up to 9/11 is that for the most part and certainly in large metropolitan areas state and local um, government whether through law enforcement or in collaboration with fire EMS other emergency response elements uh, or services they generally can handle most situations on their own but there are clearly some issues that they perhaps can and that's where you need the assistance of the federal Government terrorism is probably one of those things that um, prior to 9-11 that the state and local governments just didn't spend a lot of time and effort on because they had other daily issues to worry about crime um, and sort of community engagement uh, and just responding to things just happening within um, you know, local jurisdictions and sort of national security priorities weren't necessarily at the top of anybody's list. That paradigm changed after 9-11 for a lot of places like New York and Los Angeles and Las Vegas and, and others. Um, but on the issue of you know whether it was the right or the wrong decision, one thing I was struck by with Portland was that on the one hand, DHS was perhaps in their right to deploy those federal re- or those DHS resources to Portland to protect um, either DHS facilities or federal facilities, because that is under the charter of, of Homeland um, Security through one of the, the law enforcement arms that it has. So yes, if the protesters were directing violent action against federal buildings, by law, DHS had a responsibility to protect those if the state and local resources or elements either couldn't do it on their own or to ask DHS to to supplement what they were already trying to provide. So that's one end of the spectrum. But on the other end of the spectrum, if DHS uh, law enforcement resources that deployed to places like Portland and others or engage in activity that was outside just the protection of federal buildings or perhaps other DHS missions, then that raises the question of what were they doing there and what authorities, under which authorities were they operating and were they, did the state and local government um, officials need that type of DHS assistance? And those are all things that necessarily haven't come out in the public domain, but I think those are some of the questions people need to be considering when you look at you know these two different ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. And you've, of course, dedicated much, if not all of your career to counterterrorism um, in service of this country. And so I just, I want to kind of dig into both domestic terrorism and jihadi terrorism. Uh, so when we look at um, jihadi terrorism and far-right terrorism, 
the big question that arises is about the nature of radicalization, right? What processes and circumstances drive individuals to adopt these extremist thinking, frame of mind, um, how they organize and find like-minded individuals, and how they actually form groups and engage in attacks. Uh, and so I guess the question is, through, through your experiences, through your, your working for the U.S. government, how, how has this occurred, right? How does radicalization look like in, in practice? Yeah, it's another excellent question, Ryan. And I spent a lot of time in my government career at places like DHS and the FBI, and then one position I had in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence focused on that very issue. Now, different context, looking more at the jihadist aspect of, of homegrown extremism or radicalization. But back then, going back 15, um, 10, 15 years ago, that was considered the biggest threat from a terrorist perspective, regardless. I mean, jihadist terrorism, both abroad and at home. So that's why we were directing so much um, analytic focus on it anyways. And again, I had different insights into that and these different uh, jobs I had or different roles that I had. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we found then is that, unfortunately, there's no easy answer. There's no there's no single profile to how radicalization occurs, even for um, sort of homegrown extremists inspired by first the Al-Qaeda ideology and the ISIS ideology. There's no demographic profile. There's no um, personality profile. There's no um, socioeconomic indicators that would lead you, that, to lead you to the conclusion that one person may be more predisposed to this uh, than somebody else or being influenced by that radicalized behavior. And then even going one step beyond radicalization, this very dynamic, individualized process that's difficult to sort of spot in advance if that's the right sort of way of looking at it. But then we started to do a lot of work on mobilization because radicalization was just, it was so all-encompassing and didn't, wasn't leading to sort of good policy solutions. So we thought, well, maybe we should just be focused on the people who are, who've gone well, well beyond being radicalized uh, to actually sort of tipping over into the, the terrorism domain and planning violent, lethal action. So we tried to spend some, some effort on that. I think we, we probably managed to do a little bit more um, detailed or insightful work, but that's, it was equally as um, complex in terms of you know, painting the picture on, on individual radicalization. But at least with mobilization, one of the things that we tried to to um, come up with were what were the behaviors that that in at least the case studies of, of people who would become mobilized to terrorist action again inspired by either al-qaeda or the, and isis what were the behaviors they were demonstrating in the run-up to committing or trying to commit a terrorist action and could we catalog enough of those behaviors to be useful in some kind of way to people who are on the front lines of this so law enforcement emergency responders um, people in local communities, social services, even um, uh, educators, but with also you know, not trying to make it sound like this threat was knocking at everyone's doorstep. So it was, it was a really difficult sort of issue to try to sort through and manage, but at least we tried to make some progress on it. So if you take all that work that was occurring for a long time after 9-11 on the jihadist end of the spectrum, and it's probably only more recently that we, or at least the, the intelligence community and law enforcement community has, has spent time looking at the, uh, the domestic terrorism aspect of it, or even the far right aspect of it, as we discussed earlier. And there are probably some similarities, but there are also probably some, some differences. And what, um, 
people found and the jihadist world. I think one of the big differences is it's, it looks like the fact that the, and the, the domestic terrorism landscape here, or even the far right aspect of it within the broader domestic terrorism landscape, there aren't formal groups um, that are pulling people to these ideologies either overseas or, or domestically, or at least there's not that many. There are small sort of groups, but there's, there's not the equivalent of an ISIS or Al-Qaeda or a Hezbollah or these large foreign terrorist organizations or established foreign terrorist organizations um, overseas. So that seems to be one. And then sort of that individual process of radicalization, because there aren't groups, because there aren't training facilities for the most part that people are going to or, or battlefield hotspots where people are trying to, to learn skills to then bring back home, um, the way we saw in the international terrorism there, or the jihadist side, um, a lot of this is playing out in the virtual world. And not to say it wasn't in the jihadist world, but there, it seems like that percentage of activity that's tied to domestic terrorism or far right, or even the far right terrorism aspect in the virtual world seems to be larger um, in comparison. So that's something that's causing, I think, more challenges to come up with good policy solutions. I, I want to pick up on something you said, that being the organization of the far right movement within the United States, right? Because we hear a lot about domestic terror groups um, nowadays, and you know, ISIS has seemingly become less of an issue as the U.S. has more or less destroyed the group. Of course, there are still issues uh, in Syria as you know, we're sending more troops over there. Um, so I guess, you know, what does the threat landscape look like at home? In your professional opinion, how significant uh, is this jihadi terror threat versus a, you know, a far right terror threat in the U.S., um, whether it be right, the Boogaloo Boys or some other you know, domestic terror groups uh, versus the actual jihadi domestic terror threat? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to, to be precise on that um, from the outside looking in and probably perhaps even from the inside, uh, my former colleagues in government. But um, I mean, there's been a noticeable uptick in far right violence or lethal action, unfortunately, in this country over the past few years. So that's a trend. I mean, there's data, unfortunately, that, that shows that that trend is out there. Does that mean it's the bigger threat? I mean, if you if you're just looking at lethal attacks, well, that's that's an indicator. Um, but there seems to be a broader movement of which people who are then first inspired or radicalized and then mobilized to take violent action sort of pull out from. But this movement is not monolithic. There's different aspects to it. There's different beliefs. The Boogaloo Boy movement, for those um, listeners who don't really understand what that is, that's something that's been around for a few years. Um, was fairly sort of murky in, in terms of how it operated as a movement. And again, it is not monolithic in and of itself. Um, there's no central sort of set of core beliefs, although there are some beliefs, but are they to the core of every single person who ascribes to this political movement? I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, but the, likewise, there are some common um, sort of values that they share, or some common values um, sort of... Uh, commitment to Second Amendment rights and sort of gun uh, protection um, seem to have an anti-government bent as well. And sometimes it's directed against law enforcement. And unfortunately, this year we saw one lethal attack by a self-professed Blue Boy um, member or individual who um, 
who killed two law enforcement officers over the course of a couple of days in um, central uh, California. Um, so that, that shows how, how powerful, unfortunately, this, this belief system can be. Uh, but then there are other boogaloos who are aligned uh, against other targets or, or other, or they have other grievances beyond just anti-government or anti-law enforcement. Some are anti-minorities, some have sort of gravitate towards hate sort of um, movement. So it's really difficult to even pin down what this boogaloo threat looks like. And the boogaloo threat is just one of a broader series of, of threats to deal with in, in this far right space. There, there were arrests earlier this year of um, actual uh, groups or self-described groups of, of people who, who have some of these far right beliefs. One group was called uh, the base, the leader of this organization is in Russia, but there are followers here uh, in the United States. Um, uh, there was another set of disruptions um, also with a group that has ties to sort of like uh, like named groups overseas called the Atomwaffen uh, Division, which harkens back to sort of Nazi or pro-Nazi sympathies. So this is a really dynamic, diverse threat landscape, even on the far right side. And again, the numbers, unfortunately, are showing that the threat is in, or the, you know, the, the, the number of lethal attacks is increasing here. Whether that continues in the country based on current conditions, other key drivers, that's one of the questions I'm not sure anyone has the answer to right now. Uh, before we wrap up this conversation, uh, we wanted to draw on something uh, from your, you know, breadth of national security experience and your work on a national security council, but also some of your work uh, since you've left government and you know you've been teaching this uh, course actually at the Ford School, looking at cybersecurity. And certainly, cybersecurity portends to be a huge part of the 2020 presidential elections. So, in that vein, uh, 2020 appears to be probably one of the most controversial and chaotic elections in recent memory with this politicization of uh, mail-in ballots, this looming threat of COVID-19, and this consistency in the potential for election interference uh, by geopolitical adversaries like Russia. Uh, In your view, what do you see as the biggest threat to the security of our elections? Yeah, another really good question that you could spend hours talking to people who are way smarter than this uh, on this than, than I am. Um, and this is not something that I spent a lot of time in, in government, as you mentioned, is more on the teaching side here at Michigan. But but anyways, there I think there are two distinct threats and to the degree to which they're interrelated is, is something that is the, the national security professionals kind of looking at this day to day probably have, have the best insight on. But one is the threat to just the the enterprise of of how voting works in the country. And that's that I would argue is more of a physical threat, although tied, as you mentioned, Andre, to sort of cyber uh, aspects kind of wrapped around it. But for those of you who don't really know how voting works in this country, it's a very disaggregated, decentralized process. And in theory, that's a that's a strength of the system is that because it's so decentralized and disaggregated at the really the local county level that's where voting individual voting happens for all of you who vote that um, there's no one key central vulnerability at least from a a, either a physical side or even a cyber side well if you just disrupt this voting database um, either in a county or perhaps even at a state level you'll you'll 
um, disrupt the entirety of the, the national election. It'll certainly have an impact on it, but it won't lead to you know, strategic collapse. Um, but at the same time, that that the, the way our system works, where it is so so different and locally driven, also presents a lot more targets. Um, for potential cyber interference. And I think that's what the Russians in 2016 tried to do. And if you look at all the reports that have been issued about what Russia tried to do in 2016 on just the their their targeting of, of the infrastructure, the voting infrastructure in the United States. So the House uh, Intelligence Committee report um, from 2018 or 2019 the Senate um, Select Committee on Intelligence has done a series of reports. I think it's five-part series of reports on what their investigation has shown, and then the Mueller investigation report. And all three of those, uh, and then other, all the other media reporting, and the entirety of that has showed that the Russians aggressively tried to target, um, or at least probe, maybe that's the best, better way uh, of thinking about the election infrastructure in all 50 states. And that's a pretty sobering fact when you think about it, that they were able to sort of, through cyber tools and cyber means, penetrate those uh, voting systems, at least the databases that, that, um, that contain information about how you uh, and I uh, all vote. What Russia apparently chose not to do, though, for the most part, maybe outside of one or two small examples, was disrupt any of that or, or, or try to sabotage it or, or interfere with it or, or compromise the data, but I think these investigations and the reporting has showed that they certainly had the capability to do it. They just chose not to further weaponize it. That's really the best way I have tried to conceptualize it. But on the flip side, and then the, the other part of what Russia did, and this is perhaps where they had even greater effect, and but much harder to prevent or stop or even gauge their measure of effectiveness, is on the disinformation side of things. And that's where the Russians poured a lot of effort into, um, into either using social media, whether it was um, the, the hack of the Democratic National Committee and the dumping of those emails, whether it was the um, WikiLeak revelations. It was a sort of multifaceted campaign to... to um, get uh, disinformation out or to to embarrass the Democratic Party. Um, and then seeing as how Russia used elements of its sort of security apparatus to push these different aspects of this campaign, I don't think anyone really knew that in entirety in 2016 or 2015, what was probably happening. But now with four years of hindsight, and again, all the investigative work that's that's come out, that's been reported, I think we now know what Russia was able to do. And that seems to be the bigger threat. Um, and I'm not downplaying what Russia potentially might try to do on the physical side or on the voting infrastructure side, but when it comes to the disinformation and the propaganda and the accelerating these social divisions that already exist, as you both have mentioned, because we're so deeply polarized as a country right now, that seems to be the, the, the greater threat um, on, as we head towards the election. And it may not just be a game that Russia's playing. It may be a game that China is playing and Iran is playing. And um, if uh, listeners have not looked to this, I would, I would point people in the direction there was a statement on August 7th issued by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And again, I spent a few years of my career in a couple of different positions in that um, broad organization. And that August 7th statement said that all three of those countries that I just mentioned, Russia, Iran, and China, 
it wasn't will, wasn't probably, it wasn't maybe. It, the, the language issued in that statement was that they are trying to interfere with the elections as, as that um, product was written, or now almost two months ago, or six weeks ago. And that, again, that's a pretty sobering revelation that the intelligence community would, would come out with that publicly. Now, they didn't say that everyone was playing at the same level of Russia, but the fact that all three are, are trying to do either the same thing or different things, maybe at different levels, that I thought was a really um, powerful message for, for all of us to realize as we head into this election. Well, on that note, uh, Javed, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Your insights are invaluable. Um, and I know that our listeners will have more information now uh, than they did before. And so thank you again. Of course, thank you for your service. Um, and thank you for being the executive producer of this wonderful podcast. We appreciate you coming on. No, thanks, guys. Um, really enjoyed the conversation today. And again, you're you're doing an excellent job leading this session. I. Most of what I've tried to do is behind the scenes. So hopefully this, this brief moment uh, in, front of the, in front of the microphone will be helpful for folks. Yeah, definitely. I think it will be very helpful. It'll be very informative to help people understand, I guess, this national security landscape and understand the broader challenges facing us in this very pivotal year, I think. So thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, guys. To hear other fascinating conversations, Subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.